0: Welcome back to another episode of For Fintech's Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson-Pettit, and my guest this week is Ryan Falvey, the managing partner at the Financial Ventures Studio in San Francisco. Ryan, the Venture Studio, and the companies he's invested in, like Dave, Propel, and Digit, just to name a few, all have fascinating stories. We unpack all that, talk about the evil and opportunity of overdraft fees, and Ryan even explains influencer marketing to me, your resident 90-year-old. I learned a lot, and I hope you do too. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Ryan Falvey. All right. Well, Ryan, thanks for being here, man. It's good to good to connect from across the country, and it looks like you're in a basement. I'm sitting in my in my dressing room, basically. So we're we're making the best of it, man. How's your day going? It's going well. It's
1: going well. Thanks for having me. It's, for uh, sure.
0: Very much, man. Very much. Yeah. I mean, we met what, like a year and a half ago that feels like three years ago in in Austin. So it's, it's a long time coming and, and I'm excited to chat. Um, maybe let's start off with the Ryan story, man. Just like how you got to the fin Venture Studio, why you founded it. Just give me a little bit of your your personal history leading up to today.
1: Yeah no well um, again thanks for having me I'm excited to be on on, on the show and um, it is definitely great to connect and have, have a longer conversation um, so I had a background in you know, financial inclusion I I spent after you know, after graduate school I spent about five years working in emerging markets and did a lot of work on mobile banking and mobile payments infrastructure um, and you know probably had the opportunity to work in about fifty different countries during that kind of five six year period it's really interesting um, Whoa. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, a lot of travel and that, you know, when my wife and I had our first child, it was, it was, it was no longer really tenable. And yeah. So I, well, uh, let's not, let's not
0: glaze over five years in 50 countries, man. Like what, what was the main, like, what were you focused on at that point? Were you just kind of all over the place helping different companies do different stuff or what was like, what did that look like?
1: Yeah. Well, so starting in like 2008, um, I was really interested in initially kind of uh, this kind of disconnect between kind of microfinance and kind of global capital markets, and um, you know, until 2008, there there was a lot of you know, structured finance transactions and ways to kind of provide lower cost of capital to microfinance institutions in emerging markets. Um, the financial crisis, uh, like all credit products, that that really got disrupted for several years, and so the company I was working for, we started doing a lot of work helping. Um, helping many of these same banks figure out how to use mobile mobile phones there's really you know obviously really significant mobile penetration that was really coming coming uh accelerating quite dramatically kind of the late 2020 what is it 2009 period 2010 yeah, yeah. um well so and, you're talking like
0: the the world of Npesa pesa and like kind of that yeah, generic yeah, exactly. side of okay
1: yeah. Exactly, and Pace was just getting started, um, and we had done some we had done some early strategy work with uh, a company called Bcash, which is now one of the largest kind of mobile payment operators in Bangladesh. And, um, there were a number of banks that were trying to get into it, and so started out just doing some consulting work on that front and kind of helping them think about what that meant, and then end up you know that business ended up becoming you know, relatively significant, and as these dynamics that of uh, growing mobile telephony, you generally a lack of banking infrastructure or, or non-existent banking infrastructure in many markets, kind of yeah. create this dynamic where new entrants, well, that's mobile network operators or technology companies, um, or in many cases, banks could come in and, and, and really dramatically expand their kind of scale and reach. Um, so we did that for a while and I, I was leading a strategy practice. So let was you know, to connect really kind of conventional for strategy consulting work uh, it's a lot of PowerPoint presentations and you know, uh, Excel spreadsheets. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah, it, so, it sounds know, more glorious when you talk about yeah. it. It's fifty countries, and you talk less about the less about the PowerPoints and the Excel docs. Most, most yeah. of
1: the time was spent inside <laughs> of an office of a bank, like yeah. Yeah. Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Great,
0: great views <laughs> out um, the window, though. Yeah, there yeah, you go. There you
1: go. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, evenings were nice. It was like it's better than like working on a project, and I don't know. A, a, a generic city in the United States. Yeah, I was gonna say
0: you don't, don't want to throw anybody under the bus.
1: but uh but yeah, that no, was really interesting. Um and I, I think so, you know, it, it, but you know you gotta get burned out and it's a lot of travel. Yeah. Uh, and, 50 know, countries,
0: like, man. That's like, that's. there's a lot of 90-year-olds that can't say that.
1: Yeah, you know, you're going, to, you, you know, there's only so many trips to pop into Guinea and you're like, all right, <laughs> yeah. I get it. I'm good on this. this.
0: Um, but the perspective then, that you had to gain from that, man, like all of those countries, just that different, like just the different culture. I mean, I traveled mm-hmm. basically not at all as a kid and d- domestically, but then I traveled a decent amount internationally and it is one of the things that really pissed me off about the financial system was just like seeing the way Like we have such a step up in the U.S., but also we shoot ourselves in the foot like three times before we get to the door in the morning, and just seeing like how far behind some of those countries are, where if you just like hand them a cell phone, they're all of a sudden ten steps ahead of us. It's just a bizarre thing.
1: Yeah, no, I got. I mean, I gained a tremendous amount of perspective, Um, and especially in contrast to, to the U.S. I mean, I had actually never really worked. In the U.S., honestly, until I was about you know thirty something, um, early thirties, when I when I when I left out of that and worked for Silicon Valley Bank, um, and I uh, and I think you just see you. See, I mean, there's 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 a lot of you. You know, the United States is a very unique country. Um, and I think you know Americans like to say that you know we're the exceptional country, but like we we literally right. are, especially like in in business things like that or technology. Um, and so while you do have these kind of leapfrog types of opportunities, there are just so many resources here that, yeah. that don't exist in other places. And um, I think that was one kind of big takeaway. Obviously, there's a lot of differences between countries, but, you, you know, the, um, the uniqueness of kind of the American experience is, is definitely a it, – it is, it is a kind of a, a unique global phenomenon. Yeah, um, absolutely. That that I think was probably the biggest takeaway later in my career that I've kind of, I've kind of been able to, 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 to use, to get perspective and understand issues. Yeah. So
0: 50 countries and then you came back Silicon Valley bank. And then what, what did you do at SVB?
1: So I was on part of a payment strategy team. So at the time they were, they were trying to kind of build out, um, so Silicon Valley bank obviously serves a lot of technology companies and venture capital funds. And again, this is about 2013, um, you had this kind of wave of, you know, what was you know, at the time kind of called Web 2.0 and yep. you know, the Ubers, Airbnbs, all yep. Square, Stripe. Um, and these companies were for the first time doing a lot of financial transactions that were not um, credit. You know, they weren't borrowing venture debt. I mean, they were running, you know, at the time, hundreds of millions of dollars of payment volume you know, through their platforms. Mm-hmm. And so SDB, which had been the bank for these companies. was like, well, we should be... Banking that. Like, that's banking. like That's like something we should do. So I was part of a team to try to figure out kind of how to do that. Um, and it was interesting. I got a lot of experience around on the US, on kind of the US market. I really saw kind of what was happening in kind of the US fintech space um, for, for the first time. Um, and my big takeaway, honestly, was like, I thought the United States was just like way better off than it is. Hmm. Uh, you know, so? you. Well, so like I would say, like in a lot of markets when I, you know, on the international side, you were a lot like a mobile banking type where you people are using, you know, their phone to send money. You know, you think about like marketing campaigns, marketing stories and the marketing campaign would be, you know, why, like why banking? Like what is the normative value of banking? Like why don't you just mm-hmm. keep your money wherever you're keeping it right now? Like why is there value in putting it into an institution? Like what's the yeah. point of the loan? Like it is much more of a, of an education of kind of the basic components of it. And so it's actually relatively easy to sell because there's like Mm. a really good reason why we have banking. There are a lot of, um, the United States has spent hundreds of years. Yeah. Most of its existence, um, creating a banking system that intentionally excludes large numbers of people. It is not particularly effective, um, in some really fundamental functions, yep. um, especially in consumer, consumer business, in consumer banking, business banking, you know, where you, where you guys, where you guys were, were bonds focused on. I mean, there's, there's a lot of places where it just, it really falls short. And the other thing that's really interesting, especially on the consumer side, and I, su- I suspect this is the case with small businesses too, is just a general lack of distrust from the banks. And so the challenge for banking in the United States is actually more convincing consumers that they should trust you. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, the financial crisis really, really, it seems to have permanently damaged whatever goodwill existed between many consumers and, and the financial, yeah. and the incumbent financial services industry. Yeah. Um, and so it's very different where it's not, you know, the, if you're trying to market something, you're like, well, we're actually better than the bank. Like trust us. Like we're your friend. And if, you, know, we actually, we, 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 we're, we, think very differently. Like we're here to try to help you. Right. And they're getting over a trust barrier that, that at the end of the day creates an environment that is actually just quite similar to what's, what, what you have in emerging markets of a lot of people who are excluded from the system, who don't believe the system has any value, who think it just helps yep. the, the rich get richer, um, but for very different reasons. And I, I think that was my kind of big observation I, I had had there. Um, and then the other thing was, yeah, you know, where I saw SDB is just how difficult it was for incumbents to get over that.
0: You know, yeah.
1: is a tech forward bank. I mean, they are, they like their whole existence is serving technology companies in the technology industry. And the CEO and the board of directors wanted to, you know, bank and do, you know, payments services and stuff for startups. And everyone was organized around that goal. And it was still super hard. And there's still so many regulatory and and, and compliance issues and just in structural challenges with how banks are organized that made it difficult. That I, I think I saw, you know, real opportunity I think I saw the real opportunity for fintech in the U.S. I guess I had I had, per, I had, I had assumed that like these U.S. companies were kind of just doing little kind of designing yeah. things and you, right. the generic kind of blow off you hear of kind of yeah uh, fintech and then working in a financial institution, even one that was you know arguably one of the most forward leaning technology institutions in the country yeah. Uh, I was like, wow, like there's a huge yeah. opportunity.
0: Yeah. The fruit, the fruit does not hang very high on the branches. It's, it's maybe, you know, grazing the ground at points and picking up apples as you walk by, almost kind of a thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's interesting listening to you talk about that. I read, I read, or was listening to something that you had said or written at some point previously. Um, and you're actually like the, you're one of the few people that is not, constantly leaning into like bad mouthing and just not believing in the neobank or challenger bank model like it's you know it's so cool to be anti-challenger bank now because you know quote unquote Mm -hmm. chime one even though current's growing like crazy and all these others are dave's growing like crazy you know in your portfolio like there's so many great examples of just astronomic growth yet the cool like fintecherati thing to say is eh challenger banks are over neobanks are done right but it sounds like you don't agree with that. It sounds like everything you were just saying is like wrong. Yeah. So (laughs) let's, let's talk more about that. Like, is it a trust thing? Is it a feature set thing? Is it all of that together? And just like banks kind of sometimes can't get out of their own way based on a lot of the regulatory pieces you're talking about. Like what, what is it there that makes you so
1: bullish? (laughs) Um, you know, I, well, so like, I'm gonna yes for the Ryan Velvey story, and I like maybe I'll, I'm gonna go back a bit. I'll give you kind of a microcosm. So one of my first Do jobs it. was I was in high school. I grew up to high school in Las Vegas, um, and I was a teller at Wells Fargo. Ah, uh, well, no <laughs> wonder you're pissed off at the financial world. No, 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 no. no. I was just, I'm kidding. I grew up I'm kidding. Wells Fargo. Great experience. That <laughs> uh, a great. Um, <laughs> totally happy with it. Uh, and you know, I think the thing I saw is like. At the time, this was like 1999, or 98, I guess, I graduated high school in 99, um, yeah. and like Wells Fargo just bought this bank called First Interstate Bank a couple of years earlier, and it was like a disaster. Like, it, mm-hmm. they had, they, they had like lost a bunch of customers, and they were like totally scarred by it. And so like, you know, we're going to like help our customers, like we are going to be like super customer service. And... They had been bought very recently by a, a, another bank called Northwest at the time, and so they were like really sensitive about this whole thing. Yeah. But they were also like just focused on sales, and so like the whole cross-selling, which ended up becoming a major crisis, which is not at all surprising to anybody who's ever worked at Wells Fargo that that was a crisis. But like where they were like, we're gonna we're gonna sell banking product, and they were one of the first to really focus on like I'm gonna engage with the customer, I'm gonna build a relationship with the customer, I'm gonna sell the customer more product. Mm-hmm. And obviously that, that went way too far, but in that environment, you really saw, hey, I saw the opportunity. I mean, the opportunity uh, for things like Dave, uh, you know, um, cause like one of the things they first teach you is like, you know, you look at kind of three numbers when someone walk, a customer walks up to the, you walk, how long they've been a customer because mm-hmm. going back to that kind of first interstate experience, how much money they have, because it's a bank, obviously people with more money are more valuable. And then how many overdraft fees they've had. I was wondering if that was going to be the third shoe to drop. Like number three, there's like three things, right? And the old yeah. system to look at. And the overdraft yeah. was like the big, I mean, you'd have people walking up overdraft fees all the time. And in, huge numbers. I mean, 20, 30 overdraft fees a year was not a uncommon. Yeah. Um, and Whoa, whoa.
0: Actually, I just said, yeah, in, in agreeance with 2030. I was oh, yeah. just like oh. skimming over and like, yeah, let's keep the conversation going. But holy shit, that's a big number. I Good mean, shit. even that's wild.
1: The average customer overdrafts overdraft seven times a year. There's overdrafters and there's not overdrafters. And if you overdraft, you overdraft seven or eight times a year, um, because we have an account in this country, checking account, which is designed for 1948 America. It mm. is designed for the I'm going to get paid on Friday by you know Factory X. Ford. And yeah. Check. I'm going to take that check down. I'm going to deposit at the bank. And then I'm gonna like pay my bills with the check. It's, it's presumed upon the idea that A, you have liquidity.
0: Yeah.
1: It's a checking account, you can't write checks without cash in it. It's actually against the law to write a checking of cashing if you don't have the money to clear the account in there. Right. Um, and so it's presumed on this concept that literally very few Americans have, which is a buffer of cash in their account. Um, and very few Americans get paid Regularly anymore. Right. Of people pay all the time, and they make the tip jobs, or they you know they, they do some freelance stuff, or they you know they run a podcast, which you know they kick, kick some a bunch of cash on the, the yeah. Or, I, the day. I
0: wish, I wish that
1: would be that would be
0: wonderful, but yeah.
1: <laughs> and so the, the the core account we use in this country, the checking account, literally doesn't work for most people. Mm-hmm. It's a bad account. They're like it just it just takes advantage of them. And so I think when you know kind of skipping forward, when you think about. Why there's so much opportunity to challenge your bank? Like you know, going to kind of those three things. Like first, like we know there's very little trust in traditional financial institutions. Two, the main product that financial institutions offer to consumers—the checking account—doesn't work for a huge number of them. Yeah. And three, banks make money by selling you more product. And so the idea that you can show up into the market right now and with a couple million dollars launch a beta of of a product and You can get a couple thousand people from across the country using it. Figure out exactly what their interests and their preferences are, what their pain points are, what their marketing messages are, and then build the closest relationship that any consumer has with their primary financial institution for fractions of what it costs the traditional institution to do it. Yep, is a huge business opportunity. And it's not like there's 6 million people who need to challenge your bank. There's like 200 million people. Because At least, it doesn't yeah. work very well. And so, like, I, I think that this is a huge space. Um, it's one of the weirdest part, it, pieces of uh, you could ever imagine in any economy where the incumbents actively don't want most of these customers. Yeah, I mean, Bank of America <laughs> doing their
0: $12 a month thing if you're a dollars or less than, what, 1500 on the deposit account. Like, all of that we, is
1: just, it's amazing the friction. Yeah, Trying to get them to leave the bank. Like I don't want you anymore. And you can show up in that environment and with like very little capital, like roll out a product that may or may not have resonance. And, um, I I, I mean, I I think, I think there's, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really mind that people are skeptical of challenger banks. Um, we're happy to be we yeah. need <laughs> <Yeah. out> there. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: let's let's get through the um, I think I feel like that kind of drags us on to CFSI or like pushes us on to your time at CFSI. Mm-hmm. What um, how did how did you end up in that position? Like that's a pretty badass job and everybody I've ever met from CFSI is Absolutely wonderful! Like John Thompson lives in Kansas City. Jennifer Tesher, I'm just a total fanboy. Um, how how did that happen? What was that experience like? And it it feels like a lot of that led directly into the financial venture studio, especially like looking at the portfolio and potentially seeing some overlap.
1: Totally, yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, I, I had known um, Jen and some of the people at CFSI for a while. Uh, that consulting firm I had worked for was actually was actually owned by a bank called Shore Bank. Um, which was a which was a really extremely influential bank on the south side of Chicago, starting I mean early 1970s um, uh, up until um, it's it, it basically failed and got kind of recapitalized in the financial crisis, and okay. that in mean, the an incredibly influential institution as far as development finance financial. Development minds goes globally. Um, uh, certainly, in the United States, the Community Investment Act is a direct kind of. Um, um, it follows directly from the ShoreBank experience in, in, in the South Side Chicago, and I mean, I, I think it, it's it's, an, it's a very interesting story in its own right. Yeah, um, Jen had started a, a non profit um, that was really focused on taking what with, with what Shorebank was doing in South Side of Chicago and trying to help financial institutions kind of broadly throughout the United States kind of see the opportunity for at that point, you know, serving the on un- and underbanked, And that's, that's obviously evolved over the years. Short Bank International, what I worked for was focused on doing that in emerging markets and kind of globally. And so I, they were kind of sister organizations. And so um, when they were, you know, they had, they were kind of in the final stages of getting this, this grant from JPMorgan Chase, and, um, they needed somebody who understood, you know, development finance and financial inclusion um but also understood you know technology and could talk yeah. about this. and and so um it was kind of a natural fit i mean i think it was it was a um uh, number of people from there had reached out to me and then i i saw the opportunity and i applied um and and it was a really interesting opportunity basically you know kind of out of whole cloth and i tried to design something to you know the goal of the lab, its base was to try to, you know, create more financial solutions for underserved consumers. And, and so you had, you know, this is $25 million grant to try to figure out how to do that. And so my job was to try to figure out what we should do to design it. Um, and so I started, you know, I had obviously come to this with, with a couple of, you know, you know, kind of starting points. One, I had seen how difficult it was for startups to get the attention of banks. Um, I've Especially seen. JP Morgan. I mean, you know, getting getting
0: <laughs> getting a meeting with ex-community bank in whatever you know midwestern city is not easy in and of itself. But you know, getting on Jamie Dimon's radar to get 25 million bucks in the in the door is a whole different thing.
1: Yeah, that's a, yeah, it's a whole different thing. But yeah, it's a little bit. I mean, they're they're not too dissimilar. And so the idea is like, hey, like listen, I show up and I invest in somebody and say say, hey, this, this money kind of came from JP Morgan Chase. It's actually a lot easier to walk into that community bank. Um, yeah, that's wow. true. That's David true. Morgan's on board with it. I got, I guess that makes sense. Um, and so I, I kind of realized pretty quickly that the real value we had was, was a reputational piece of obviously mm-hmm. Morgan, but I think more equally importantly with CFSI and it's, um, you know, it has, has a lot of cachet as, as just an arbiter of what a good product is. Absolutely. Um, and so then if we're going to put our stamp of approval on a product, we should have, you know, we should have some skin in the game. Um, and so that's where the investment piece of that came from. And, you know, originally it, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really, it wasn't designed to be an investment program. Um, but what the investment did is made sure that people who are we working with were serious about it because if you're going to take money from, from somebody like you're, you're kind of stuck with them and so yeah yeah it also really
0: created a cachet like when somebody comes out of that program like when I was recruiting at Fountain City FinTech back at MBKC like anybody that was coming out of FinHealth Network or coming out of that you know whole side of things I generally figured there was no shot in hell that I could get them into Fountain City but I always really wanted to because I it, it had that like kind of magical aura to it as a result of going through the program.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, and that, that's really nice of you to say. I mean, I I think that I think that a lot of that a lot of that came from the fact that we were able really to tap into a like a reservoir of goodwill. Yeah. That that CFSI had built over you know decades, uh, or you know, decade and a half at that point. And, yeah. Um, and obviously like the, you know, the brand of JP Morgan. Um, and so the other, the other thing I, 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 I tried to bring to the table, you know, when going to the international development experience, like I remember it was very challenging to, um, you'd have these projects sometimes where we'd be working because like they got a, they got a loan from a big multi, like the IMF or the world bank. And you need some technical assistance to come alongside of it. um, and, you know, sometimes you on these technical assistance projects and just be miserable because like the company obviously didn't, didn't care about you. You're a bit and Like they got money, like yeah. you're just, you're just something yeah. that comes along with the money that they have to kind of deal with. Yeah. And I said, well, those are always the worst. And I just didn't, you know, I didn't want to do that. And so, um, when they are setting up the lab, I really wanted to have a, a, a model where like, you know, the founders were really driving the, what they needed and, and could kind of, you know, could kind of focus our, our support for the individual things that each company kind of needed to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that worked really well. Um, and so we did that, you know, did that for about three years. The portfolio started to perform, you know, remarkably well as, as he, he indicated um, from a commercial standpoint as well, as well as from a social impact standpoint. Yeah. Um, and so we thought for, for a while about trying to kind of start a fund internally. Um, it was, was, was challenged. It would have been challenging for a whole host of reasons. Um, Not the least of which is the fact that CFSI is a nonprofit.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of levels to it. The JP Morgan, 501c3,
1: all of it. There's a lot there. (laughs) And also, like, frankly, like CFSI does a lot more than running this thing. And and it got to be a point where, you know, it's not, they've got a whole variety of of, of wonderful programs and and, and, they run this network that helps a lot of financial institutions. And so, yeah, I I don't, it just wasn't something that made a a whole heck of a lot of sense at the time for, for them, for, for them to do. Um, and, and, you know, I think for me too, I was kind of, it had been, you know, three or four years and I was kind of looking for kind of the next, the next thing I wanted to do. And and so I saw kind of this opportunity to take a lot of what we were doing there that was, that had a lot of value with, with, with the founders. And and that was, you know, really trying to connect them to regulators and policymakers, potential partners, investors, um, um and, and each other. And there there were, there yeah. were value from that. And then we also saw, you know, um that in in the several cases that our ability to kind of drive media attention and kind of get the word out about companies amongst kind of digital influencers was also having a a really significant impact. Yeah. And so um what we thought we could do is kind of build an investment fund around that, around that idea. And so, um, Tyler Griffin, who's, who, who was the other, you know, uh, co-founder with this and I you know, launched the financial venture studio in early 2018. Um, and the idea is, is with FinTech, we can, you have this, we think there's kind of essentially like a, once in a multi-generational period here of change in the industry. Yeah. Um, and if you think about it for the last going to your question on challenger banks for the last three hundred years, banking has been pretty pretty pretty. Uh, or financial services in general is pretty clear path how you how you do this effectively. You go get a bunch of granite or some other really expensive stone, and you drag it to the most expensive piece of real estate in, town. Yep. in a town. Yeah, you suit and you follow the rules. And if you do that, the government gives you an oligopoly to bank in that physical territory. Yep. Um, or sell insurance, or whatever other. And financial versus generally sell securities. Yep. Um, that's kind of how it works. And it's a great, it's a great, it's a great jam. The problem is, is you know, <laughs> that's not the most competitive market. Um, and so with technology now, you have the ability with a couple million dollars to you'll roll something out that's A, no longer bound by that geographic proximity it can sold across the entire country. However, and you don't need to pay for the, for the rent or the granite, but you still need to kind of project that aura of trust and confidence. And you also need to follow the rules. We haven't changed the rules in banking or, or, or other financial services industries. And so, while not only cost you a couple million dollars to get live, it oftentimes takes years and hundreds of millions of dollars to get to scale. And, yeah. and so what we're trying to do here in the studio is idea is, we can come into these companies really, really early and, you know, make a relatively small investment. And then over the course of about six months, try to very really systematically plug them in, plug our founders into those kind of five key stakeholder groups. So financial institutions, regulators and policymakers, uh, um, investors, uh, media and digital influencers, which are our Shannon, Austin, um, we also met when, when I was working at CFSI. Yeah. Lead on. Um, and then, um, and then other founders and kind of build this network yeah. and it, this experience where we kind of quickly network them and then not only kind of make them help them make the connections, but give them advice on how to leverage those connections to be successful. Yeah. We're really trying to do is, is save our founders a lot of time and you know, time is connected to money. And so if we save them time, then hopefully the investments are worth more, more quickly. And we're also then able to then get them in front of the right types of investors to take them to the next stage. So, you know, there are structural elements to what we're doing in the lab in a sense that there's, there's this kind of an idea of like a programmatic way of supporting the companies, you know, post investment. So I, we bristle a little bit at like, you know, the idea of it's an accelerator. Um, although we, yeah, that's probably the best verb. Um, but that was
0: going to be one of my next questions is like, I think, especially on, I've, I'm hearing more and more about venture studios in SF, mm-hmm. right. I'm hearing more and more about venture studios on different pieces of the East coast, but I don't think it's necessarily like penetrated the zeitgeist of the entire U S or, you know, especially yeah. the Midwest. Um, so why, why did you go with the, the noun of venture studio versus accelerator? I mean, I think it's one of those it, it creates uh, it creates interest for sure, but I bet it creates some questions and it you know Midwestern
1: banker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you know I I don't you know see so now and you're, you're never supposed to pick a name that's like in opposition to something else and so <laughs> we we kind of vile we, we did some mistakes like day one you know like that was one of them so we didn't want to I, I think we didn't want to be associated at, we didn't want to be thinking of ourselves as an accelerator. Um, Because
0: then you're competing, right? All of a sudden you're competing with YC and you're competing with Techstars and all these others, I'm sure, is a piece of it.
1: Um... I don't want to you know I I that, that I certainly I think if we adopted the business model of those businesses yes I agree yeah, I mean, that's where we don't take 7% of equity for companies coming through us I mean, I just, that's probably one reason we wouldn't be as competitive but um I think the bigger issue is there's a lot of founders that don't want to go through an accelerator a lot of people like uh, especially like especially in fintech you got a lot of second third time founders you're like yeah man I know how to build a company yeah um um I don't need that uh what I need is you to introduce me to somebody at bank X or I want to raise a series a and like I have really tactical things I'm working on. And so we, we were trying to, what we were trying to kind of elicit with the, with the venture studios, Hey, this is kind of like a home for founders to come in. Like we can help them build their business. Um,
0: it's not school. It's not like come in and go through, you know, X hours a week and all that kind of stuff. Like you would kind of assume with an accelerator, it sounds like
1: yeah exactly i think when and, and you know like you know, we kind of you know my, my partner tyler says you know like you know yc or TechStars, uh, these are great places to kind of learn how to you know run a startup
0: like yeah.
1: um when we're, if that's case like the analog word maybe kind of graduate school for fintech like we're kind go. of assuming that you know how to like hire and do some of these other basic things yeah like,
0: it's about fintech not about the like just the world of startups, I guess, yeah. is a, maybe a good way to phrase
1: it. And if you look at like our portfolio, I think almost every kind of you know cohort of companies will have one or two that have come out of O Y C or or a tech yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, the idea is a little bit, we're, we're trying to kind of be – kind of want to be Switzerland a little bit. So we're, we're able to kind of work with all these players. Um, we have a great company coming into Y We want to be able to come in. And, you know, I think if we're saying, hey, we, we take X fixed percent equity percent, you're like, nah, I don't need to do that anymore. I did that. Um, and I think that's a, that's a little bit we were trying to do. Um, you know, I think the the venture studio... You know, uh, it's, it's so it's a bit of a misnomer because there are venture studios out there, and you know, generally what they're doing is kind of co creating companies, right? Where you, you and I are going to get together, and you can start your company here, and you're going to get done, and all in eighty percent of it, and then twenty percent. And you know, and, um, I, you know we, we don't in fintech. I think that 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 model's more challenging to pull off.
0: Yeah. Especially with the amount of follow on rounds and dilution that you have to take. Like if, if that kind of ownership percentage ends up actually anywhere close to true by series a, you're like not even motivated as a CEO anymore. I would think.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things that we try to do. So we our our investment strategy is generally to invest a relatively small amount up front about a hundred thousand dollars, which allows us to come in pretty early. Um, and then we try to build on that capital position pretty quickly. We'll go to about a million dollars of exposure within, you know, uh, usually by the time of the next institutional round. And the idea the thing is we're, we're kind of, we can start out relatively small and kind of build a position in those companies that we, we see are really taking off. And also at that time be a lot more helpful in helping them kind of curate the cap table and bring other investors in the mix. Yeah. Um, you are right. These are businesses that require a huge amount of capital. You know, realistically there's, there's, there's only a couple dozen funds in the country that are that are really realistically able to open up that capital, kind of post Series B. Yeah. And so a lot of what I'm try to do is get our get our founders in front of those firms. Previously. Yeah. There's something that I
0: hear you talk about a lot that is not like a standard a standard talking point from a lot of the folks that live in the similar world that we do, right? Mm-hmm. And that is specifically influencer marketing. I think it's something that like, you know, somebody will say something about it because it's like a table stakes buzzword that you need to say out loud during conversations. But I feel like you harp on it enough that you have probably a very, you you seem to have a a strong opinion about it. How, how, like, how does that work in... In the financial venture studio, are you making introductions to like individual influencers? Are you helping consult on like a fifty thousand foot influencer plan? It's just it's a you know coming from a nerd yeah. that doesn't have Instagram. I feel like only you know I only understand pieces of it. Well, I, first off,
1: I I'm not the rapper's right talk about. We our, <laughs> our secret is, is a, <laughs> we have a we have a partner Shannon Austin who's you know kind of a genius with these types of things, and so gotcha. like we basically just. Yep. Go talk to Shannon. How Shannon kind of take? Yeah.
0: Um so it sounds like a very unique like arrow in your quiver though.
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that are kind of unique, unique arrows, Ria. That that is certainly one of them. And taking kind of a step back, going to that kind of hypothesis, so if we're going to use the internet to sell financial products, like we need to use the internet. And yeah. the internet is not made up of giant media brands that conversation the conversation. like that's just not how it works like you know it's it's people who you trust who have the communities of people that look to them for different advice and perspective and those people saying oh hey this actually this tool is actually pretty useful for me um i don't want to say it's not endorsement it's actually getting the trust of people who have the trust of others yeah and i i think that is that's like the great power of of the internet, and I, I think if you're a, a financial services company, you should be trying to tap into that. Um, it's very difficult for incumbents to do that. Uh, if if I were to name any large bank right now, and and you know. It, you had a, someone who, you know, you follow them. You, you're, you're you're an influencer. You have an audience, people who are listening to this, people who, who kind of care about your ability to kind of curate the conversation. They might not lit, take you every single word you say, but if you're like, oh, hey, you know, Ryan at the Venture Studio is a, a good guy, they're probably going to yeah. give me the benefit of the doubt.
0: Yeah, or even um, like
1: Joe Rogan and
0: Cash App is what comes to mind for me. Totally. There's,
1: yeah. I mean, there's, and there's, there's a lot of those types of people out there. And you're not, and so you're not in... But if you're like, hey, J.P. Morgan's an amazing bank, people are like, all right, on, cool. They must have paid you. Right? <laughs> yep. like, have but if you're like, oh, there's this app, Dave, that like seems like it's doing really well. I'm going to have the founder come on and talk about it. Like people might be like, oh, that's actually interesting. I'm going to look that up. Like, you know, Zach tends to have good instincts for these things. I like his, what he talks about. And, and so that, that's kind of it. And so what, what Shannon spends a lot of time with the company is doing is, A, helping them get their story straight a lot of fintech companies have like super complicated stories that like don't make any sense to somebody.
0: Yeah. Where often they're the hero instead of their customer and things like that.
1: Yeah. Or even like, you know, um,
0: features, not a narrative. I'm yeah. This is, it gives me PTSD from fountain city. not,
1: not Not to pick on any one company, but there's like, you know, the company that does like banking as a service. Well, like, what does that mean? I don't know a bit. What do you mean? Banking is, isn't banking a service? Like when, when you're, I bet you, when you're talking to potential customers with your bond hat on, you're like, no, actually we like have these, you know, we automate compliance and make it easier to do this other thing. Like, Oh, I know what that is. Um, you know, we, we, we allow your brand to make more money. By doing a you know financial product, I mean there's there's you're simplifying the story to connect to a consumer, yep. to a to a business you're selling them to, and and I think a lot of early stage founders by and large are challenged with this, but in financial services particular challenging, because you're you might start the business out and you're really focused on telling the story to investors. And then you've got to very quickly, you know, you have partners you need to work with. And so they're showing up t- to you and saying, oh, hey, hey, it's not going to be that big. Don't worry about it. It's because a little thing you're going to test, like you don't need to give me all the scrutiny in the world. Like is this a- And so you're constantly having to do this kind of code switching between things. And it actually makes it really difficult when you do talk to somebody who, who's in a business of, of, of influencing or, or having a, an audience or a, an audience that, they, that they're talking to all the time to quickly understand what you're doing and tell and, and kind of convey that story. And so Shannon spends a lot of time with that just in getting the story right and helping people get more concise about what they're talking about. And then also then she has this vast network of, of people that she's, she's built a lot of trust with and she can say, Oh, Hey, you know, I, you should really talk to, uh, you know, to, talk to the, talk to the guys at Copilot. Like this is a really cool product and it kind of fits with your audience and is worth okay. taking a look at. And so she's kind of built that trust. And and I think one of the reasons we we were, we really focus on that is because if you can pull that off, you acquire at a significantly lower cost of acquisition than anyone else can even come close to. Yep. As of today, Dave is acquiring users for a fraction of even what their competitors are. Um, even though they're millions of customers because they have this kind of vast network of people that like, like Dave and talk about it and trust it and are telling people about it. Um, I'll tell you what, I, my kind of aha moment was I was at this, uh, Shannon had organized this dinner with a number of influencers in, uh, it was like 2017 probably. And at the time, and I was working at the lab and at the time Digit was our kind of the first little company. Yeah. And she's next to this, this woman named uh, Tiffany Leachy, who, um, I didn't know who she was. And She's like, oh, you should tell her about the companies. She's got this huge kind of Facebook group. And um, I'm, the first company I'm going to talk about is Dave, because it's got so many customers, obviously. I mean, I was right, Digit, because it's got so many customers. It's the most well, it's a Series B company. Yeah. She's like, oh, I know Ethan. I know customers <laughs> of customers are my people. I'm like, what? What? Like, that would be hundreds of thousands of people. And so I, I texted Ethan, like, during the conversation. Like, is this, hey, man, I'm sitting with Tiffany. He's like, yeah, like. And like he wrote me back. I mean, basically, yeah, like half of our early customers have come through Tiffany. Um, and and a, run, she runs a Facebook group? She runs a Facebook group. She's called Tiff. Her her name is kind of Tiff the Budginista. Uh, oh, I've, I've heard of her, I think, actually. Yeah. Okay. Hundreds of that, probably millions at this point, of yeah. mostly, mostly black and Latino women, Latino women, um, who, you know, she's kind of... She's she's just an, she's a voice and she yeah. has an audience and she knows what they care about. Yeah. And so and she spends the beginning of the year each year kind of talking about you know like tips we're going to take this year together. We're going to kind of yeah. do different things. And yeah. Also do different budgeting tools. And she it's uh, like Oprah finance she, kind of vibe. Like my, my favorite things. She, she needs a diligence. She needs a diligence to companies though because she's had companies where she's featured Ooh. them and the apps just broke because they couldn't handle the onslaught of people that like just signed up when Tiff gave give you know, the, gave wow, people.
0: that's interesting.
1: I mean, that's, I mean, there, and there's lots, Yeah, lots, lots, I mean, she's one of the, probably one of the best out there and certainly one of the most influential. Yeah. Um, so this there also are,
0: kind are, of explains your. Uh, I was I was doing a little creeping on you in the in the podcast app, and I saw that you had been on stacking Benjamins a couple times. That explains yeah. that. Gotcha. It's one of the things oh, we no, have in Shannon, common, actually. Shannon
1: explains that. Just to be totally clear, <laughs> Shannon is is his ability to kind of find these things. explains it. But yeah, so Joe at stacking Benjamins, you know, he nice. has DFM maps on, and you know, he he has different budgeting tools, and you know, companies go on there and thousands of people will sign up.
0: Yeah. It's wild. It was one of the, one of the, it was like the only influencer channel that I had at fountain city. So anybody that was B2C related, I was like, have you met Joe? But yeah, (laughs) no, I I agree with it. I guess I just never thought of that. I think of influencer marketing as like the Instagram boyfriend with the Instagram girlfriend somewhere like out in the middle of the street, like doing something, stopping traffic, taking it. Like I hadn't thought of how broad of a statement that actually is. So it's really, it's it's a it's a new like mental model for me to think about it because I think I have a I probably have a negative connotation around influencer marketing just because of my my experiences with, you know, there's a reason I deleted Instagram, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: as <laughs> the guy who runs a podcast. I know, um, right?
0: The irony is strong. Very fintech. Yeah, the irony is incredibly <laughs> strong, incredibly strong. So, let's let's dig into Dave a little bit more. I think it's one of those things that's like how how it's less about Dave more so about Dave and all of your portfolio companies but I think you're you're investing at a point where you know Dave wasn't a very obvious neo bank or a very obvious challenger bank like right they were just doing that overdraft piece um, mm-hmm. point I think maybe had a little bit of a broader you know perspective there um, but it seems like a number of these started very small and yeah maybe with Dave as a good example, like, did you, when you invested at least those early dollars, like, did you kind of see this roadmap or were you like, man, this is a really interesting feature?
1: Oh, no. I think that, I think the overdraft to this day, I think the overdraft product is more valuable than, than, than being a bank. Like I, I realize I'm a, a rare person who thinks that, but I think the market should realize that like what they're doing on overdraft is more valuable to consumers than, um, someone doing like a banking type product. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, I I think that one of the things that, so like when I saw it, I mean, there were a couple of things. One, um, you know, I had this job at Wells Fargo. Where all these people were coming at the overdraft fees, right. yeah, so You've I, had some I, experience. Early, early in my career, I realized how much is gets paid on overdraft and how how kind of valuable it is. Um, but also, I also mean from the CFSI experience. I mean, uh, you know, the the FDIC I think estimates it like ten you know, there's like nine or ten billion dollars of overdraft fees a year. That's that's one of the most sandbagged numbers there is in financial services there are individual banks that make that much on overdraft fees. It is almost entirely profit. Um, and it's, it's frankly like t- it takes, it's taking advantage of people who don't have money Absolutely, And, yeah. and I don't think there's any chance that it's going away because there's a number of banks in this country that would also go away if they got rid of overdraft fees. Um, and it's something that consumers hate. You never got an overdraft fee, it immediately resonates with the Dave marketing slogan of "Overdraft fees suck." Yeah, um, there's no way to have be happy about an overdraft no, fee. No, no, it's like, think oh, it, cool. Yeah. I paid thirty-five bucks, so I could like buy an extra like you know gallon of milk and overdraw my account by five dollars. Like that's yeah. awesome. I'm really excited yeah. that advance I got. Um, so I thought it was it's a huge space. Um, and so it didn't really take me any convincing. I was like on on board with it, like right off the bat. Um, I think of a lot of other in, investors, you know, one of the challenges that Jason, Will, the founder had when he was pitching this business early on is people just didn't know overdraft fees were a thing. Like, why, why would someone get an overdraft fee? Uh, think, yeah. Well, if you're pitching, I mean, business, mean, yeah, you know, yeah exception of, you know, small time guys like here at the venture studio, like most of these people are just loaded, right? And so like, being yeah. like why don't you leave like 10 grand in your checking account, like what you don't have sold to pay over for yeah. like, well, that's, that, that's
0: one of the things that blows my mind about like another friend that we have in common, Jimmy Chen from Propel, mm-hmm. right? Like his ability to raise money on that fresh EBT product, like tell, show me a venture capitalist that's ever been on food stamps. And it's, you know, it's not a significant population, right? I mean, it's, it is, it's really interesting the way that you have to help lead them to you right in a lot of those conversations
1: yeah totally and i mean even even to this day i think you know um that the overdraft the revenue from kind of the core product right now i think there's in big growth stage investors who were like well you know i don't know how stable it is like maybe they'll just ban overdraft fees and goes away it's like no it's not even it's not gonna do that like this is- <laughs> <laughs> no no
0: are you familiar with the uh with the banking
1: lobby are you yeah. <laughs> are you aware
0: of washington dc uh <laughs> yeah
1: it's it's like it's it, this is and so i you know i am um, you know, it's funny. Even, even, in, uh, you know, Parker Barilla in Northwest, who um, who led the Series B there, which was like at a billion dollar valuation, like one of the most, most incredible marks ever from this where the Series A was. Um, I had talked to him about it a year before, and I think I, I don't think I, I think he'd be okay with me telling his story, but he was like, I. Like, I'm aware that this is a thing, but like, why is this a big business? Like, I don't mm-hmm. give me more information about it. Um, because I think for a lot of venture investors, they just, they're not really plugged into the challenges that most people have with the financial services industry. Like they still know. Yep. Totally.
0: Totally. So to the, but the other side of that coin, that's really like Dave has done this really interesting. We're going to start with a, fucking pain point of pain points, like the ultimate migraine level pain point. And then we're going to expand products. But then you also have like digit on the, on the cap or digit in the portfolio, which has done a really good job of just like focusing and building a business. Do you guys push them to, I know it's like the founders running the company and everything, but is there ever like Ethan add a debit card, Ethan add an issuance product? Like, or is it just like the, like, I I don't even know the question I'm asking. I just think it's such an interesting juxtaposition against the two,
1: you know? The answer for both those guys is no, Neither of those guys like many great founders is particularly receptive to just unsolicited <laughs> advice on their business. Yeah. I, um,
0: yeah. uh, as a they, user they, of both, it's, it's like, that's where my questions honestly come from is like having been a digit user for an extended period of time. It amazes me how they continue to improve on the core product, but like kind of, well, I guess they're doing that little, that credit thing now. Um, but it, it's just, I don't know. It's unique in terms of a strategy and a direction. They're not following the, you know, classical no.
1: FinTech Arati direction. No. And I think, I, you know, I, I think because FinTech Arati doesn't, doesn't know what they're talking about. I mean, they're follow they're listening to their customers. You know, I remember, so one yep. you know, great ethe, ethe story at Digit is I was, um, you know, it was when he first decided he was going to start charging for the product. Um, he, we were talking and it was about something completely unrelated. And he's like, oh yeah, by the way, we're going to do this like tomorrow. Like, wow. Really? Like, you're just going to do it. And, you know, we went back and forth and, you know, he'd kind of made up his mind and he made, made some you know, minor, minor adjustments to the product. I think based on some feedback people had, but he was like, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, when he first rolled it out, he got, you know, the, the company got kind of pillared in the media. Yeah. And, you know, there was this whole kind of backlash and he had a competitor that was like, well, we're never going to charge for our product, which I think goes down as one of the, you know, the dumbest things anyone could ever claim publicly <laughs> too. Yeah. Um but uh they eventually charged the product because they had to. Because oh so you you're saying charge. like you're yeah, saying yeah.
0: economics and profits
1: a thing that you need eventually? You eventually need that. Yeah. So when you're larger um, when you're larger the larger player in industry has to start charging, like that might be a sign that everyone needs to. Right. So but one of the things that you know looking back on, it, and I think Ethan would was thinks that was one of the best decisions he ever made. And I, I think he's right, is that you know he's always, I I I learned who my customers were. Yeah, you know, if you're willing to pay three dollars for it, like I should care a lot more about your opinion than somebody who's just here because it's a free product. And, and like yeah. the second third wine you know, getting you pay for it, you, you you bail. Like you weren't really a customer of mine. Um and, you know, you're asking like how he's kind of continuing to double down. is because he's just following his customers. And, and I yeah. think Jason's doing the exact same thing. I, yeah, I, he's, he's listening to what his customers are telling us and following those customers. And both those companies, I mean, it, you picked out two companies that have a significant advantage on customer acquisition. Yeah. Um, it's been a durable one. I mean, one of the things that's kind of amazing is companies that are good at acquiring customers early. Stay good at it. Um, they never get bad. They just develop a competency in acquiring customers. And I was going to
0: say it's like it's not that first strategy, right? It's like the competency and the muscle that they develop over time of being able to learn and change the strategy as they grow, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're always going to be doing new stuff. I mean, the internet's changing, technology's changing, um, so it really is a skill and a competency that these companies develop. But at the core, of that is obviously listening very, very close, paying very close attention to what your customers are asking for. Um, you know, knowing what their where their where their interests are and in, you know, in giving that to them. I love it, man. Well, we, uh, I could talk to you for hours,
0: I think at this rate, <laughs> I'm having a lot of fun. Um, but we have like five minutes left and I got to go talk to what hopefully will be the next Dave in the next digit after this. Um, so the last two questions, man, one is what are you doing to stay sane during this time? Is there any, uh, any advice that you could provide to the world? I know you're a dad, so I'm guessing there's probably not much sanity existing over there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, the human hum- humans are remarkably adept. Um, so we've kind of adapted, I think, to, to this new reality. Um, yeah, you know, I've, I've been trying to continue exercising. Um, that's obviously important. Um, you know what I've, we, we, we're, I, have we we i i have been trying to do and not so well. It's like, just take a break that's a novel like, idea. Yeah. Like this is just kind of, this is just kind of mind numbing a little bit, you know, if you're just kind of constantly in the flow and I, I don't know if you noticed this, like, you know, the last three day weekend we had, you kind of come back you're like, okay, cool. Like that was like a weekend. And so I, I do think people need to take breaks. I mean, this is what's interesting is, you know, we are all on kind of the same, like, you know kind of rhythm now here yeah. like for the three months ago we all got locked in our houses and so you can definitely tell i think people are all, everyone's just kind of the same stage of just being kind of frustrated and over it and 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 you know, i'm married to an epidemiologist so oh I'm, man i'm not going outside anytime. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so but like i think i think taking the breaks is, is really important and, and it's easy to not do that and, and I, I think that that's something that like you know we're trying to do
0: that's great advice, dude. It's, it's wild how much like a 10 minute walk in the middle of the day, even just like little thing, get outside, experience some form of some fresh air and move your feet and put one foot in front of the other for like 10 <laughs> minutes. And it's, yeah, it's mind changing.
1: I've also st- stop doing the video zooms. It's just. It's a lot,
0: isn't it? As we, as we finish up our hour long video call. This is bad,
1: <laughs> It's only an hour. Like hour eight of this. And you're like, oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's very, it's taxing. It's taxing. Yeah. And I also don't think people listen as well as they do when there is are some, a phone call.
0: No, I off. think that's incredibly true. Cause then you're, yeah, there's, yeah, I, I agree with you there. So the, the last one is I guess kind of twofold. One is what can our audience do to help you? And then the second one is really just how do you get in touch with Ryan? What's the best way to kind of find you on the interwebs?
1: Yeah. So on, on the second one, it's pretty easy. I'm at Ryan at FinVentureStudio.com. Uh, Beautiful. Me on, on Twitter or LinkedIn, we try to be pretty receptive. And um, I'll say, if you're interested in the studio, we, you know, we do, we will, we do application periods. We, we meet companies year round, we invest year round. So if you're raising money, you should reach out. We'll definitely talk to you. Um, if you're, um, it, but we also do an application period kind of before we start each kind of cohort to just you know make sure we're casting a wide net we want to try to be inclusive obviously um you know, we suffer from a lot of the same challenges that uh, the venture capital industry as a whole does of, of, you know, not not being the most diverse team. And so one of the, the application process does allow us to at least try to look past our network and, and, and try to build that build that pipeline a bit. So totally, uh, that's definitely worth calling out. And I think from the audience, obviously we'd love to, you know, any company, anyone who's ever, so you're starting a company or if you, you want to get involved in working with fintech companies, like all of our company many of them are hiring, um, and so you know what what we really kind of offer i think is is access to to a network of people who are who are kind of leaders in this industry and so the more we can kind of build that network i think the stronger the offering is and frankly the more more valuable we are to our to our companies
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Ryan Falvey. If you're not already subscribed, please click that button in your favorite podcast platform. And if you really love the show, please leave us a review. It helps other people find us. And also, it just gives you a chance to share your point of view, which Twitter doesn't do enough of today. So let's do it in podcast reviews as well. If you don't love the show, then I really have no idea why you're still listening, even after the interview is over. I mean, come on. Anyway. And if you want to get in touch with me, learn more about Bond, or just talk it out during these trying times, please reach out. You can get in touch with me via email at Zach at ForFintechSake. Or if you want a faster or more business-centric response, you can get a hold of me at Zach at Bond.Tech. Otherwise, holler at us on Twitter at Zach or at ForFintechSake. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and try not to pay too much attention to the news.